Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. Noble Heart. Welcome to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters, a podcast where we watch and then talk about a production of every single play written by William Ezekiel Shakespeare, who needs no introduction. But we do, so I'm Tammy Sarah Lindy. And I'm Luke O'Hagan. This week on Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters, Othello, directed by Oliver Parker in 1995 and written in 1603 by William Shakespeare. We specifically worked when developing the schedule for watching these shows to make sure it was the kind of schedule we could adhere to and wouldn't make us want to quit halfway through. We put the histories in chronological order, we made sure we weren't watching too many tragedies or too many comedies in a row, and then, when we were done with that, we sprinkled as evenly as possible among the other plays the capital B big capital O ones. The plays that people recognise as being the great works of the Shakespearean canon. And now, depending on your opinion, of course, we come to the first of those, Othello. This is a work done often, performed by fantastic, generation-defining performers, and rightly recognised as a prime example of the work that Shakespeare was capable of doing. It's not a perfect play, but it's a play that leaves us with a great deal to talk about, and so we shall. And now, for the sake of brevity... A synopsis of Othello in one tweet. I, Othello, have an excellent life. I stole this guy's daughter for an excellent wife. We're warring with Turkey for some excellent strife. And my Lieutenant Diego is a f- So I guess to start with, there's a burning question. Do you think Othello is one of the big ones? I have mixed feelings about Othello, generally. Right. I agree that it's probably one of the stronger plays of Shakespeare's that he's written. Um, it's obviously one of the more popular ones. It's easier to contemporise. It's got some really strong characters. So, yeah, but my my problems are my own and they're not based in academia and they're not based in true critique. Uh, I performed the role of Othello in a a small excerpt of it for a university assessment in my second year when I was training to be an actor. And through the exploration of both the scene and what it meant to be playing this strong, formidable, respectable general, I just, I really struggled with the idea that this strong, cool-headed, calm man lost his because some dude said that the handkerchief. Anyway, I think this particular adaptation's found a way to execute 
the fall of Othello without sacrificing the integrity of its characters and relationships. But for my own person, I still feel uncomfortable with some of the moments because of my personal opinions and my relationship with the character and my, the version of, Othe- of Othello that, that exists in my head for me as an actor. Does, right. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think we're going to talk a little bit later about that sort of idea of the character of Othello and his fall and what does that say about, you know, all kinds of things, stereotypes. There's there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. But I'm going to agree with you in the offset. I think that this adaptation does take a lot of steps to sort of help ameliorate that problem in a way. Because, I mean, the first and glaring thing when you read the full text of Othello is that it is so much Iego's story. Mm. He has the most lines in the play. He has um, the a lot of the story is built around him. He's the glue that takes these different subplots such as they are and brings them together. And in this adaptation, they have drawn that back a lot. Yeah. They've rearranged some stuff. Yeah. Um, which the big thing is that rearranging, and we'll get to that. Um, they've done that to sort of increase the importance of the character of Othello. And I suppose when you're doing it in two hours, you kind of have to do that. Yeah. In a sense. But I think that cutting harder into Iago than it does into Othello, and especially early on, leaving Othello with his big monologues and that helps establish him as this sort of really grandiose without being it's not sure it doesn't feel shoehorned no exactly he does he does feel like a commanding respected officer of the army without it feeling shoehorned into that and you believe everyone around him who respects him yes right which is why when we are revealed that Iago is a villainy villain doing villain things, it's yeah. a shock, right? Yeah. And it, that's something I think this adaptation does well. Admittedly, I haven't watched many adaptations of Othello. This is not a play that I am as familiar with as you are, for example. But I thought that that was done well, the yeah. establishment of those two characters. And I suppose... Talking about those two characters, we have to talk about the casting. Because this really, it's it kind of is a two-character play, right? Although, before we get on to talking about those two characters, and we're talking about casting, I would just like to briefly shout out Desdemona and Amelia. Yep. Uh, this Anna Patrick, who plays Amelia, and Irene Jacob, who plays Desdemona, who both did fantastic work in this play, in roles that are definitely... Um, uh, it's easy to be overshadowed. Yeah. In this ro- in this role, in this play specifically and especially. Yeah. While um, we're talking about Anna Patrick, um, who played Amelia, um, for some reason my memory of Amelia as a character reading the play when I was studying it, my memory of her was that she was complicit in the sense that she was assisting Iago. She was she was part of the mastermindery of Iago's plots yes. and when it came to that everyone was getting in trouble for being involved, she kind of tried to save her own neck by outing Iago to try and save herself. Yeah. But in this particular adaptation, um, it didn't feel like that at all. It actually felt that Amelia 
was not aware of her husband Diego's vindictive desires. Yeah, her helping was just she was you a know, pawn. Yeah, yeah, this... and but but on top of that, she was extremely strong, and she was extremely. Um, opinionated in telling Desdemona, hey, if your husband is treating you like you need to not be okay with that. You need to throw that off because you don't deserve that. Like, it was actually a really strong message against domestic violence, I felt. Absolutely. Not that I I know that it was... was meant to be that but that's what i got from it well i think any situation in which you've got sort of a a a partnership like that yeah and you give the woman strength and agency you are making a a statement about you know the role of women right and about but it changed the dynamic of the end section where she's coming out saying iago is a villain she's actually coming out more in strength and not being afraid to accuse men of wrongdoing and accuse people of being evil and venomous. Um, and it comes from a place of strength and and almost disgust rather than a conniving sly, oh, um, you know, it wasn't my fault. I was... I was construed and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know what I mean? It was it was from a place of you are wicked and I am going to speak that out and I'm not afraid to die for it. And also, I loved, there is a scene in this play where Desdemona is talking to her maid, Amelia. Yeah. After the first time, she's sort of semi been accused of being yeah. unfaithful towards the Othello. And Desdemona is, is saying... You know, do women really do this? Do women really do this to their husbands? And Amelia is like, yeah, most of them do. And that fantastic contrast between the naive, chaste Desdemona Mm. and the cynical, worldly Amelia gives you a great example of what the breadth of women in theatre can be. In a, you know, this is a, this is a, play from the 17th century Mm. a lot of the women in these plays are not complex but these are women who are complex and these are women who are complex against each other and with each other and i just i thought their work was fantastic in a role that can i think and quite obviously be overshadowed yeah so this piece is called othello Yes. Uh, so we should probably talk about Othello. Yes. Um, I really liked Lawrence Fishburne's performance as Othello. I thought he brought a really natural approach to the character, and he didn't turn it into some melodramatic farce of a performance. Well, he's not. He's not. A, he's not the most Shakespearean actor in the world. He, uh, reading into this, he's apparently had never. He had read Hamlet once in high school, and yeah, that was that was the extent of his exposure to Shakespeare. Yeah. So he's not bringing all kinds of weird opinions to it. No. And I think he does an amazing job in the first instance of Othello being suave and regal mm-hmm. and incredibly sexy. Oh, yeah, very much. <laughs> There's also a real calm and centeredness as a man. Like, it's it's very attractive. I can see, in that sense, I can see how Desdemona could be attracted to him. And want to marry him secretly in the middle of the night. It's a, yeah, that whole the sort of the beginning of the of the play, which clearly in this play is there to set up what we think about the character of Othello. Yeah, I can see myself in a weaker reading and a weaker adaptation of this play, thinking, "What a useless bit of theatre!" Like that first 
10, 15 minutes. But in this, I understood why it was there and I bought it 100%. Mm. It worked for me. And I would be the person to say, cut a lot of that stuff out. But that all really worked for me. It established how great Lawrence Fishburne is in that role. You know, I'm a 90s kid. To me, Lawrence Fishburne is Morpheus from The Matrix, right? Yeah. And so I don't think of him as like the leading man, but he is so good as the leading man. Yeah. And it's interesting that, you know, to talk to that idea of we don't see these certain people as leading whatevers, it just goes to show that when given the opportunity to be a leading, that maybe we need to rethink our preconceptions of what is considered to be leading material and not. Yeah, I mean, we we do make assumptions about actors based on that. And, you know, as, as an actor who has assumptions made about him, and I think you as well, yep. you know, both of us are, we would be character actors. Neither of us are really going to get put into the leads and things, with some exceptions, I suppose. But I think you're completely right. I think when you give people the opportunity with material that works yep. in, in the situation, it's an example of something that can really work. Yeah. And Lawrence Fishburne, who may be not the most uh, obvious choice in that position, mm. uh, especially for the mid '90s, there's a lot of there's a lot of fantastic black actors working mm. in that time. And Lawrence Fishburne, maybe not the obvious choice, but a choice that really worked. Oh, perfect choice. And then this takes us very naturally on to yet another actor who, it's interesting, you don't think of him when you think Shakespeare, Kenneth Branagh. So That's that's not where I thought you were going with that. (laughs) Yeah. So Kenneth Branagh obviously does a lot of Shakespeare. Um, We are going to see him uh, twice more from memory, probably more than that. In in the course of this of this uh, podcast, yeah, and he's taking on one of the great roles. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting, right? Do you think that a part of the reason why we think of the great Shakespearean plays as of the great Shakespearean plays is because they're the plays that actors want to do? Yeah, mostly because here's the thing about popular plays versus non-popular plays, and this this I think applies not only to Shakespeare, but to theatre and art at large. A lot of what dictates what gets done and what what te- lasts the test of time is about popularity. Yeah. And it's about how it resonates with audiences, but it's also about who decides what's being put on, yeah. right? And so there have been a number of occasions where things have been produced and put on because a certain person really wanted to put it on. Yeah. But to the general wide-ranging audience, it's not a popular play, so it doesn't get done as often. Same with with um, the Shakespearean stuff. For example, Mary Wise of Windsor. Yes. Um, you know, we had someone on Reddit, I think yeah, it was. Yeah, well, so, so we were talking on Reddit, and uh, it was Jim... J-I-I-M-B... He commented about uh, Mary Wives of Windsor saying that in the US, Mary Wives doesn't get that much recognition. In the UK, uh, the RSC used to do it a lot, but a recent survey of RSC patrons showed that it was no longer in favour. And but that's and that's what I'm saying too. Like, you know, Mary Wives of Windsor, we've seen this beautiful production, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. Um, and we spoke about it at length in that particular episode, obviously. But 
the idea that it has gone out of favour and out of popularity means that it probably won't get done for another 10 years. And, you know, that sort of long-lasting fame and popularity happens when good actors and good creators set about to create good work. And then if that happens over and over again, you get situations like Hamlet, where every time Hamlet has been done, it's been done by a fantastic team. And yeah. it's a, and people want to go see it to see how, how does this actor, who we all know, you know, yeah. a Benedict Cumberbatch, a David Tennant, take this on. Yeah. Right? Bringing and, it back to our original point, though, yes. with Othello. Yes. Yes, I agree. One of the main reasons that Othello keeps getting done is because actors want to play Iago. Yes. And for me, at first, it was an interesting choice to have Ken Branagh play Iago because in my mind, he's not a villain. No. And this, this again, speaks to the idea of when we look at particular actors and think of them as certain character types or roles or leadings or whatever, I look at Ken Branagh and go, oh, but he's the lovable romantic Blah, and I, but in this, oh my gosh. Well, I think that works, right? Because in the first instance, you see him talking to all these people, talking to the Rodrigo and talking to Othello, mm. and he's this this kind, he's Ken Branagh, right? You, we, I, I wrote down, and I know you did it in your mm. notes too, that he's Benedict. He's yeah. doing his exact, and he only just before this, it was a couple of movies before this, wrapped on uh, Much Ado About Nothing, mm. his version of playing Benedict from Much Ado About Nothing. And he's doing that same thing. He's, you know, he's gregarious and yeah. he's charming. And you're like, this is a weird choice for a villain. But then he changes. Yeah, the flip happens and oh my gosh, it was marvellous. It's, so we, I've spoken, I, I've just recently been listening back to a lot of the uh, podcasts we do, and I seem to praise subtlety a lot in acting. <laughs> this were not subtlety. He turns into a monster just in the face. But the interesting thing is that, and, and how I've written it in my notes, is that we only see the true face of Iago, air quotes, true face of Iago when he speaks direct to camera and that is the most villainous that he seems. Interestingly, I think that there's been a choice made in this production and possibly a choice in the way it's written as well mm. that the asides represent madness, right? Yeah. Because at the beginning, Iago has been driven into this madness and he's going to punish Othello Yeah. and he's got this huge plan that he's going to carry out to do this and... Othello mm. only starts his asides to the audience mm. once his madness has taken hold. So they give that to us, that sort of, uh, that crazed, that emotional state of mind is represented mm. by the mask coming down. Yeah, well, and, and I think that's that's probably a really accurate way of putting it is that whenever anything is directed to camera, it's when the mask is removed. Yeah. So for Othello, we see his true inner thought of, disruption and of madness and of insecurity with Iago we see the true face of villainy and of deviousness and of cruelty and there's a couple of moments there's a couple of moments where he makes the camera but he doesn't say anything there's no line delivered but just just with a look oh yeah just with yeah. a look it gives you that understanding of where his character is at in his yeah. mind there's one time where he hugs Othello and just as his face comes past he makes the camera and it's just just beautifully yeah, done. It's, it's actually quite brilliant. It turns out that Kenneth Branagh's a good actor. So. Well, I mean, I knew he was a good actor. I yeah. just thought he was a, you know, bubbly, friendly, sexy. And it turns out he can also do psychopath. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
to me, second best Thiago I've ever seen behind Gilbert Gottfried. Moving right along. <laughs> the, um, what, what moments in the play did you really like? What moments in the play stuck out to you? What do you remember? Look, I really like that this adaptation begins as it ends. Uh, with a boat ride. Yes. <laughs> it was a very nice bookend for me. I really, I really enjoyed that. Um, I actually really enjoyed the scene on the beach where uh, it was actually the the scene I did for my uni assessment. Um, mm. It's where Othello is just starting to come into the real stress part of thinking that Desdemona might be unfaithful to him. And Iago comes to him and it's it's really interesting scene where Othello's demanding the that Iago says a whole bunch of things and Iago stays silent. And then by the point that Othello's like, well, fine, I'm done with you. Then all of a sudden Iago wants to say all the things. Yeah. And it's part of it's part of Iago's trickery and his manipulation of Othello. But um I really liked that because I noticed, obviously knowing the scene intimately. Um, I noticed that they made some cuts to it and, and rearranged some things in yes. that particular scene, which I agreed with because the things that they actually cut from that big, big monologue section were actually some of the parts that I struggled with when I was doing the the scene because I remember it being a difficult scene to continue escalating and continue escalating and continue escalating. I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um you know, and and obviously I was doing a very small section of it, so I didn't have the benefit of being able to shape it over the course of an entire play. I was just doing a scene, so I had mm. to shape it to that scene. And it was intense, and as much as I enjoyed it, I look back on it and I'm like, oh, it, I've... there are so many different choices that I would make now, but yes. that's that's part of growth and that's part of learning. I think... In this particular one, I think it allowed Othello to take more time and make the oncoming madness more believable and more acceptable than what I felt when I was doing it. And I think just to sort of speak further on that scene, outside of the play as written and outside of the that escalation, I think it's a wonderful opportunity for us to see Kenneth Branagh and Loris Fishburne work together yeah. in... It's kind of the equivalent of a small room, but it's not. It's a beach, but, you, you know, it's a small room. there's nothing else. There's yeah. nothing else there. And it's just them working and working hard and... But making it look effortless. Yeah. And and, and the fellow is dominating yeah. Iago. And yeah. it's, yeah. Well, it's interesting because, oh, and again, this is this is because I've, I've delved into this scene to a much deeper level. Yeah. This is it, good. it looks as though Othello is dominating... But it's actually Iago who is weaving the web and and entrancing Othello to fall into it and get tangled up in the web that, that Iago weaves. So Iago actually has the power in that scene, mm. even though Othello appears to be the dominant figure. That is also shown in what I think is, is a wonderful way of um, doing what you can do on film that you can't do on stage. There's an extended sequence where... Othello is coming to Iago and asking him various different questions and getting different pieces of information. Mm. And in the film, it is shown with the passage of time. It's lots of different spaces and lots of different areas. And Yeah, again, you know, that's something you can do in film that you can't do in live theatre. Well, you, you can sometimes. But you can't. You literally <laughs> can't do what they did with that scene. No, no, not exactly like that scene, no. But And it's, it is... 
I, I like I remember looking at it and just being really impressed with it. Like yeah, just like of this course. is impressive. This is an impressive bit of filmmaking. Yeah, that is that is the one thing that film has over live theater in that to in live theater the actors and the energy that they are giving are responsible wholly and solely for the movement in a scene and to keep the progression and the energy moving forward. In film, you can substitute that sometimes by having scene changes and film cuts. Yeah. So like in the middle of a conversation, that should only be taking in one time in one place on in a live theatre setting can be shot in three different locations over three different time periods, but you can be still having the same conversation. And as audiences, we accept that Oh yeah, they totally walked for an. They totally stopped their conversation mid sentence, walked for an hour without continuing it, and then picked it up in a new location as if they never stopped talking. Yeah. Yeah, we're like as a film, as as film audiences, we accept that as normal and acceptable and okay and fine. And Whereas in live theater. You couldn't do that because it would take a half an hour to change the set. Well, even I think even if you had really quick set changes and really intelligent lighting, people would get bored with it. Yeah. People would get bored with it in the five seconds it would take you. Yeah. Even if even if it was as crisp as you could possibly make it, people would get bored with it. Yeah. But th- and that's and that is why we need both mediums because film is important for different reasons and live theatre is important for different reasons. And yeah. it takes different skills and it takes different sets of people and their creativities to make it come to life. And it's a great this is a great example of how you can tell the same story great both ways. Yes. And using the uh the advantages you get in your particular mediums. Exactly. What about stuff not so good? <laughs> I, I Look, I do have some nitpicks. Yes. I struggled with the chemistry between Othello and Desdemona, especially at the beginning of the play. I just didn't believe it. It, yeah. was, it was real cardboardish. It was very, um, it felt very much the actors were playing at being in love with each other rather than just being in love with each other, um, which made it hard to buy that this woman would have snuck off in the middle of the night to marry him, which is the first scene that we see. There's no dialogue, but we see the secret wedding with them sneaking off in the middle of the night to get married without her father's permission. And I just I just didn't believe it, and that was a struggle for me. As the play went on, it got better. Yeah, I think her performance picked up. Well, I uh, think his did too. Like, I didn't believe him either. Like, yeah. That it, it got, it's not just – it's not one or the other to blame. It is both. Chemistry is a two-person problem, not a yeah. one-person problem. Yeah. It's a two-person problem, and both of them had problems. But as I said, as it progressed, it got better because I bought into the relationship between the two of them by the time he was killing her, right? Like oh, <laughs> that's, that's when it's important. Spoilers. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I'm glad that it kicked in by then because if it hadn't, I would have been real annoyed. Yeah. I – I felt that Rodrigo was a little much. I mean, you mean as a, as a character, like uh, as written, um, or as performed? As performed, I think. Yeah. Um, because as a character and as he's written, he's kind of a little bit of a stalker on Desdemona. You can kind of understand why her father's like, uh, "No, uh, you're not for my daughter." You nick off. But the actor himself was a little much. Like it was a little. Compared to everyone else's very, very grounded, very centred performances, Rodrigo just felt a little clownish for me in the setting of this play. Adaptation, I'd say, rather. Also, the 
the sex scenes generally in this production are just weird and uncomfortable to watch. It was very I, 1995. Like, it, I think it was a style at the time, right? Uh, well, that style should never have happened and it should never come back. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I also, like, as much as we've said how much we loved Lawrence's performance as Othello, I did have one little nitpick with his choices of um when he's sort of having these madness phases and madness episodes he kind of goes into what looks like an epileptic fit yes and i mean to be fair iago does describe it as epilepsy and that is as is described in the original and that is what is in the script and in the text and so i'm not saying it's a wrong choice it's just not one i would have personally made it was very it looked very uncomfortable. I was just like, oh my God, he's having a, he's having an epileptic fit. It wasn't like this idea of madness, as in he's stressed to the nines. Yeah. It was an actual medical epileptic fit. And I was like, that's not madness. He's having a fit. Somebody help him. He will have brain damage. So for those of you who haven't watched this version of Othello, uh, but have watched The Matrix... Um, there is uh, so Lawrence Fishburne in the scene where Neo and Trinity are coming in to get to rescue him out of the building, and that's the 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 big fight scene and everything. And he's being tortured by the agents. He does this sort of thing where he's rolling his eyes back of his head and he's struggling and, and moving around and stuff. And that's exactly what we're talking about in this. And that makes me feel like it's just something he does. It's one of his acting things that he's got in his toolkit. And and like I said, it's not that I disagree and think it was a wrong choice. It's just not the choice I would have made. No, no. And, and that's fine because all, all choices are valid if you can justify them. Um, it's yeah. just, you know, sometimes other people don't like them. And look, it, it was a bit weird at the time when I, when I was watching it, and then it's kind of justified in in universe in the script, and I'm kind of like, okay, well, let's just let that go then. Yep. It's fine. It, it, I didn't hate it. Look, I didn't. This love section it. is about our nitpicks and hot takes, so that's my nitpick, and that's the only reason why I'm voicing it. Yes. It's okay, Lawrence. I still love you. Yes. So I, I suppose in terms of the negatives, I think we need to talk about race when it comes to this play. Because that is a big part of what the, especially the zeitgeist conversation about this play is. Yeah. And I think a big part of the reason why they took the time to rearrange the play to give Othello more power before his descent into madness is as a reaction to that racialization of the character of Othello, right? Yeah. Like, because there is definitely sort of as written and as was traditionally played in this character, there is a, the reason why he goes mad so quickly and is tricked so easily is because of his race. Which right? is so stupid. And uh, look, yes. okay, having played Othello, I didn't play it as a black man. No, right, because that would have been ridiculous. That would have been absolutely ridiculous. What I did was I found the similarities in Othello's journey and Othello's um, personification that matched my own personal journey as a woman and as someone who has also been oppressed in certain ways but has risen in her life to places of leadership and places of authority and places of respect. Yeah. And... I then found my way into 
the idea of like you can be in a position of leadership and be in a position of respect, but then be undermined in such a way that you come under the most incredible weight of doubt to then undermine yourself and bring yourself to a crashing place. And that can happen regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of sexuality, regardless of any of the things. Yeah. It can still, it can happen to anybody. And the idea that Othello's reason for madness is because he's black is, re- yeah, I'm, I'm angry. I'm going to stop now. Sure. But let's, let, this is exactly why I wanted to talk about this, right? Because you're, you're right in that you can explore this. And as an actor, you explored it through that idea of sexism, right? And through that, and, and as a black actor taking on the role of Othello, you can explore it through race. What I'm saying is, I think that there's two ways to approach Othello as a story when it comes to race. There is what is done quite often now, and most recently done in 2016, 2017, by the RSC. They cast the entire play black, Mm -hmm. like everyone, and that kind of takes race out of it, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's not like... You know, you know, they, they, it, it takes that as a justification out of it and makes it about sort of pure hatred. They yeah. also do a little thing about colorism as well. Yeah. But it sort of takes that out of that. And I think that's a valid way of looking at it, right? Yeah. But I think it is just as valid to explore racism in a uh, in a theatrical context. And I think what this particular adaptation did kind of splits the difference in an unsatisfying way. I think that... But it was 1995. It was, yes, it was 1995. Look, here's the thing. It was the first filmed version of Othello with Mm. a black actor playing Othello. It's the same decade that the RSC was still putting people on stage as Othello in blackface. Right? (gasps) (laughs) Yeah. It's, you know, this is, in within the lifetime, only, only, I think, 50 years before this, we had... Laurence Olivier doing this, not just in blackface, but as a minstrel show in a in a terrible black stereotype, right? No. So, so no. It's and not this, okay. And this this and this is why I think that Othello has a use as a fantastic piece of theatre, but it also has a use as a way to explore race in theatre. And if you're gonna do it in the way the RSC has just done uh, and take race out of it, I think that's completely legitimate. But I think it's equally as legitimate to explore race in the theatre using it. I think if you don't do either and you sort of just ignore it while you're doing it, it's a waste of time, right? Yes. Because theatre is political. Theatre is always political. You know, as much as people... And, you know, I, I, I've had some arguments this week with people. As much as people want to say that these plays are just as written and they shouldn't be, you know, they shouldn't be used as a vehicle for political thought, it's always going to be political thought. You can't depoliticize the theatre. I mean, sure, Shakespeare didn't have the same politics as we do today, but he had his own set of politics that he wrote to, and it is very, very clear that Shakespeare was writing political commentary at the time he was writing. Absolutely. And yes, Shakespeare may not have been putting a racial con- connotation into the work that he did in 1603. Or he may have. Or, or he may have, right? But 
this is not a work that is in 1603. This is a work in 1995 yep. or it's a work in 2020. Yep. You can't divorce the time in which you do a piece yep. from the piece. Exactly. And that's that's really all I have to say in the matter. I think that this this wasn't an offensive version of this. I think that they gave Othello strength, yes. but I think that they didn't want to talk about it. Because it was 1995 or for whatever reason... They didn't want to talk about it. I think it's an opportunity missed. Yeah. So that was a lot. Yeah. Quote. How <laughs> about some fantastic quotes that we like from this play? <laughs> Look, guys, you know, this is usually a comedy podcast, but, <laughs> you know, sometimes you got to get real. Yeah. Look, my favorite moment is more like a sequence of events. Yes. It is the true master villainy of a 28-year-old Iago. He sets up Cassio to fall using Rodrigo as Rodrigo's obsession with Desdemona as the tripping mechanism. Yes. Then he sets up Othello to fall using Cassio as the tripping mechanism because he then um, suggests to Cassio that he should go to Desdemona. So again, he's using Desdemona in the, in the tangling web. Um, So he says to Cassio, go to Desdemona to reconcile with Othello, which basically sets up the pawns to then trip Othello saying, Cassio is trying to strip your wife. Mm. Which he's obviously not because Iago sent Cassio to the white. Anyway, it's just a piece of master master villainy. And mm. I just, I think for a 28-year-old dude who, you know, clearly has nothing better to do with his time, it's quite brilliant. The other thing about uh, Iago's master villainous plan is that, uh, you know, depending on how you, how you hold your face, it worked. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Othello ends up dead. Yeah. Sure, uh, Iago doesn't get his position on high. No. But I don't think that's really what he was going for. I think this was an act of revenge and an act of racially motivated hatred, right? Yeah. And just not to talk about race in every part of the podcast, although (laughs) that's completely fine. Um, Interesting point. An early thing, and was happening sort of in the early 2000s, and it happens a lot now, is if you're going to have a mixed-race cast and, and have a black Othello to be really, um, to sort of show him as the other when it comes to the rest of the white cast, mm. something commonly done is making Cassio black as well. Oh. And so it shows, it, it really makes Iago's villainy more... Racially. Racially motivated. motivated. And, it, like, everyone he works against yeah. and everyone he hates is... Because of race, which is kind of related to what he says, right? Yeah. When he talks about his motivation. Yeah. Um, but I just think that's a cool choice. Um, so in terms of quotes that I love from this play, yeah, I- Iago saying, uh, come, come, good wine is a good familiar creature. If it be well used, exclaim no more against it. You know, just justifying getting boozed. <laughs> it's it's good good to say. Uh, Rodrigo saying, I have been tonight exceedingly well cudgeled. <laughs> Is possibly the best way of saying I've been beaten up I've ever seen in my life. It's great. And the final thing, the final quote I have, when devils will the blackest sins put on, they do suggest at first with heavenly shows. And that's That's where the first half of our podcast title comes from. So I had to say it. Yeah, of course. It's where it comes from. Would you watch this again? Uh, I wouldn't not watch it, but I don't know that I'd actively seek it out either. Um, not because it's not good. It is good. I'm just probably a little ambivalent about it, I guess. I would watch it nine times. <laughs> um, I, I, I specifically want to uh, seek out, I want to watch that new RSC production of it. Um, so yeah. I'm going to try and seek out and figure out how to watch that. I also want to, and this is something I, I said to you, 
I really want to see a Mean Girl style adaptation of Othello. Yes, um, I remember you saying that to me, and I still <laughs> remember feeling very confused about that. Well, when you think about it, the the play is about jealousy, right? Yeah. And Mean Girls is about jealousy. Yeah. And if you made every every person in this play a teenage girl and put it in a high school, yeah, it'd be fantastic. Yeah. What's wrong with that? You know, producers call me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how many spears would you shake it? Three and a half. So that's interesting. So three and a half for a play that you're real ambivalent about kind of shows the quality of what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, it was still a good play. I'm just, <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying it was bad. It was a good play. I'm just ambivalent about it, I guess, because of, like I said, my own personal things with this play. I'm yeah. just, yeah. Uh, for me, it's four and a half spears, which I think is now equal top. And yeah. I really, really liked it. You can tell watching this play why it's one of those one yes. of those plays, right? And yeah. why why these roles are roles that get sought out. Exactly. And I dug it. And now a sonnet that is not sonnet eighteen. Sonnet one hundred and twenty. That you were once unkind befriends me now. And for that sorrow, which I then did feel, needs must I under my transgression bow, unless my nerves were brass or hammered steel. For if you were by my unkindness shaken, as I by yours, you've passed a hell of time, and I, a tyrant, have no leisure taken to weigh how I once suffered in your crime. Oh, that our night of woe might have remembered my deepest sense, how hard true sorrow hits. And soon to you, as you to me then tended, the humble salve which wounded bosom fits. But that your trespass now becomes a fee. Mine ransoms yours, and yours must ransom me. You've been listening to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters. You can follow us on the socials using HSAUL Podcast, where we will also make our show notes available. Feel free to send us any questions there or send us an email at hsaulpodcast at gmail.com. You can subscribe to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters on iTunes, Spotify or anywhere good podcasts are available. Next time, we'll be watching the 2012 Globe Theatre performance of Taming of the Shrew. This podcast is produced in partnership with That's Not Canon Productions and music is by me, with editing by both Tammy and myself. Thanks to William Shakespeare, Zane, Daryl Scott, Janet, Bernadette, David, Emily, Kate, Peter and Jason for your help and mentorship. See you next time. I know he's 28 because it actually says that in the script. Oh, yeah. Three. No, what was it? What's the... He says some math and I worked it out because I do math. Excellent. Um, but basically, first he makes Cassio fall via Rodrigo. No, wait, hang on. Sorry, stop. Just doing some more math. <laughs> no, I'm going back to the start because I think I, I screwed up. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.